The morning after my father's burial, I found him on my doorstep, clods of earth clinging to his eyelashes. Who would desecrate his grave? Oh, Christ, who wouldn't? The man had more enemies than teeth. Instead of asking questions, I called the gravedigger, paid his fee, and watched as he buried my father beside my mother. Again. The next day, the corpse lay in his own bed. Spiders crawled from his mouth and made homes in the sheets. I paid the gravedigger double to take the bed, too. I awoke that night to feel myself being dragged, my wrists caught in a death grip. Skeletal hands tossed me into a hole, where I lay stunned as earth was shoveled over me. Then I heard my mother's voice. If you won't take him back, you can take my place, she said, and soil filled my screaming mouth. WNSP presents the No Sleep Podcast Hour, starring David Cummings and the No Sleep Players. Nights of darkness. Fear creeping through your soul. Pounding heartbeats. Join us for tales of horror during the dark hours when you dare not close your eyes. And we're warning you. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. David Cummings, thank you for daring to be with us at the No Sleep Podcast Hour. If your dad won't stay in the ground, hear this lesson, quite profound. If he returns to you quite often, you really should lock his coffin. A good word of advice from author Lindsay King Miller, from the tale which was this episode's cold open. Heaven doesn't want him. Performed by Erica Sanderson. As we're now in the heart of summertime, I'll bet many of you are thinking about camping in the great outdoors. If so, might I recommend Goat Valley Campgrounds? Well, no, no, not the actual campgrounds. Those might be a good thing to avoid. I'm talking about the musical score to the Goat Valley Campgrounds series we did in Season 17. Brandon Boone has released the haunting score he wrote for Goat Valley. You can find it on all major music streaming services. Just search for Goat Valley Campgrounds and I'm sure you'll find it. And there's a link in the show notes for Brandon's Bandcamp page where you can purchase the music for a very reasonable price. It's the perfect soundtrack to listen to while you're camping under the stars in the dark woods far away from anyone when you're vulnerable to whatever's lurking out there. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> never mind that. Just grab Brandon's music and enjoy the heck out of it. Now, adjust the antenna, tune in our signal, and settle in front of the TV to watch this week's Nightmares. In our first tale, we have a dead body to contend with, Ah, but don't worry. It's all in a day's work when you're a medical examiner. 
As we learn in this tale, shared with us by author Jeremiah Dylan Cook, a man's common cause of death should require a simple autopsy, certainly not a descent into something much darker. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin, Mike Delgadio, Atticus Jackson, Nicole Goodnight, and Wafia White. So don your gloves and take up your scalpel. The cadaver awaits, and so does the abyss within. The following is a recording recovered from the Hazel Peak autopsy of a John Doe. If you have any knowledge of what occurred, please contact the Hazel Peak Police Department. This audio has not been edited in any way. This is Hazel Peak Medical Examiner Creed, starting the autopsy of an unidentified white male. Subject was delivered by Hazel Peak Police after being found incapacitated outside a school playground. According to police, subject was alive and talking about a a shadow man he met. Subject was pronounced dead by arriving EMTs. Cause of death is presumed to be a heart attack. Subject was wearing a suit upon arrival, black pants, jacket, and a white dress shirt. Underneath were flannel boxers. Subject has uh, no tattoos or piercings. Uh, Weight is approximately 320 pounds and he measures six feet in length. Nothing of note regarding male genitalia, and anus shows no sign of injury. Hair is graying brown, and eyes are dull blue. No facial hair. Rigor mortis is not yet present. Proceeding with examination of chest cavity. Doesn't the microphone hanging above the body ever get distracting? You get used to it. Uh, Why don't you make the Y incision to get us started? Are you sure? I haven't been here that long. If you're going to take over for me one day, then you'll need to start doing this kind of stuff. Okay. And uh, don't forget to narrate for the record. Starting the incision. Cutting from the right shoulder to the middle of the chest. Now cutting down to the belly button. Struggling due to this guy's huge gut. Um, let's keep it respectful. Uh, Sorry, Uh, this guy's, um, enlarged intestinal area. Not bad. You'll get better as you go. Completing Y incision with cut from left shoulder, setting aside my scalpel, and peeling back the subject's skin. Alright, here, I'll help. Thanks. Uh, subject's rib cage is below. Should I get the saw? Uh, not until you've got your skin flap secured. M- my mistake. Now I've got it. Uh, good. Alright, now you can start the saw. And uh, remember to stop the saw before you try to narrate again. Starting the saw now. Halfway cut. But there's something strange. Well... Don't be shy. Put it on the record. It feels like there's a draft coming from inside the body. I noticed a chill myself, but I I doubt it came from the body. Our air conditioner probably kicked on while you were sawing. That must be it. 
Uh, resuming saw. Sawing complete. Proceeding to remove the rib cage. My God. Can you verify what I'm seeing? It, it, it can't be. Should we get someone else in here? No, not yet. Not until we know this isn't some kind of wild joke. A joke? Is there another possible explanation? Help me try to get him on his side. A yeah, good idea. Almost got him up. Damn. The table is all that appears under the subject. Good God. How is that possible? Let's drop him back down. I don't understand how it's possible. Should we narrate it for the record? Yeah, I'll do it. Uh, well... Medical assistant Shelley has just completed the removal of the subject's ribcage. Inside is... Well, all of the subject's organs are missing. And... And there's a fucking staircase leading down inside of this guy. It doesn't make any sense. And when I stuck my arm inside the cavity, it goes beyond the point where it should hit the table. What medical assistant Shelley says is accurate. The stairs appear to be some kind of black stone. Yeah, they feel cold to the touch, and the chill Shelley previously noted is coming out of the staircase. I can't see the bottom. Can you? No. But it's so dark. I count 15 stairs before I can't see anymore. Are you sure this isn't some kind of ritual hazing? The old scare-the-new-staff-member-with-the-M.C.Escher-corpse bit? If only. Do you think one of us could fit inside? You can't actually be considering going down those stairs. Well, I, for one, want to know what the hell is going on here. Yeah, but why don't we get a police officer or someone to go down there? This isn't exactly in our job description. Maybe you're right. Jack, is that you? It's... So dark down here, Jack. Holy hell. Did you just hear someone shouting up from down there? Was that in my head? You're not Jack. Who's there? That's your first name, isn't it? She's asking for you? It's not possible. I know that voice. None of this is possible. I'm sure we'll wake up at any moment. Who is it? My wife. But isn't she... Dead. For eight years. Drunk driver sent her off a bridge. Jack! I've got Emily down here. She, she's doing great. C come down and see. Wait, stop. What are you doing? I have to go down there. You're crazy. We need to call the police. Or better yet, the FBI. No one but my wife knew the name we picked out for our unborn child. Your wife died pregnant? I didn't know. I'm so sorry. I, I have to check if she's really down there. Oh, I can't stop you, but I highly recommend you reconsider. Just think for a second. This is all insane. What are the chances your wife has returned from the grave with your unborn child inside a deceased stranger? Jack, it's so cold down here. And it's dark. I... I can hear you, but I can't find my way out. I, I need light. Emily needs you. 
I'm coming, honey. Hold on. Shelly, hand me that flashlight. Here. But be careful. Do you need anything else from me? Just stay here, in case I need you to throw something down. For the record, I'm climbing atop the man and squeezing inside the cavity now. I'm going to keep talking because I don't know what the hell else to do. Jack, or uh, Medical Examiner Creed is descending the stairs inside the corpse. I can see his light growing dimmer. Are you okay so far? Yeah, nothing to report yet, just stairs. Honey, are you near? I can see your light, you're almost to me. Medical Examiner Creed's light just vanished abruptly. Sir? Jack? It's fine down here, Shelly. Come down, you won't believe it. I already don't believe it. I don't need to come down there. Why don't you come up? I need another light. Uh, Please, bring me one. I can toss one down. Wouldn't that be good enough? It would break. Please, help me get my wife and child out of here. Help us. No. I can't. It's too weird for me. You're going to let me and my family die down here? Lost in the dark? Okay. I'm coming down, but I'll meet you halfway. I'm not going to the bottom of the stairs. I'm just going to the edge of the light. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, that'll work. I'm crawling inside the body now. Descending the stairs. I'm stopped on the 15th stair. Can you see my light? Just wait there. Can't you see how grand it is down here? I don't see much of... Wait. It's getting brighter. I can see walls. It's enormous down here. It's like a cavern. There's something wide a few steps below me. Did you notice that on your way down, Jack? Jack Fell, we need you to come further. I can't support him without you. No. No, I'm going back up now. I won't come down any further. Ah, the light is brighter now. I can almost make out whatever it is on the steps. It looks like... Oh my god. Join us down here in the dark. We need company. Come on, Shelly. It feels marvelous. You can't be. I'm staring at what's left of your... The body's chest cavity is closing above me. No. Help! Jack? Do you and the newbie want me to order lunch? Jack? After several hours... Medical Examiner Creed's secretary reported him and his assistant missing. A search of the facility discovered nothing out of place. The John Doe's corpse remained on the table with the ribcage removed. The organs were present inside. An additional examination revealed the man died of a heart attack as assumed. The body remains unidentified, and the medical examiner and his assistant remain missing.
When you're young and in love, it's natural to feel like your love will last forever. But soon you learn that life can change and carry on. But in this tale, shared with us by author John Crane, we meet two people who were in love as teenagers, finding themselves together again in their special spot, proving that love can run quite deep. Performing this tale are Mary Murphy, Graham Rowett, and Ellie Hirschman. So allow yourself to smile as you remember young love. Just be wary if you find yourself returning to Zephyr's Rock. I remember the path to Zephyr's Rock as being fairly long. It isn't. I hiked the trail in about an hour this time, the first time in 17 years, and found everything to be a little bit smaller than I remembered. The rock itself is an unassuming hunk of greenstone, tall enough to serve as a point of note, but too plain to serve as a point of interest, mostly unremarkable, apart from a small plaque commemorating the discoverer, Carl Zepper. I never bothered to read the inscription on the plaque. And I didn't bother today, either. I did look closely at the base of the stone itself, where I found it. Alex and Sam forever. It was slightly faded, and surrounded by dozens of profane engravings that were much more imaginative than anything we'd been able to come up with back in 2005. Still, it was there. For the first time in a week, I felt a small tinge of relief. That changed when I heard the footsteps behind me. I heard his voice before I saw him. But as soon as I heard the leaves crumble under his shoes, I knew he was there. The feeling was mutual. Of course it's you. Let me take you back to a night in 2005. To the best of my abilities. I remember the fresh smell of pine mixed with the slightly bitter decay of the deadwood. I remember holding my hand in front of my eyes as we followed the trail to the peak. I remember looking at Alex and seeing him brush his hair back self-consciously. He caught me looking at him and tried to appear nonchalant. We followed the trail quickly at first, nervous energy propelling us up the mountain. We'd walked it nearly every weekend for a year and we'd established a rhythm. One of us would start talking while the other listened, throwing out the occasional joke. Our pace would gradually quicken until it became unsustainable. Then we'd stop and take a moment to look around us with fresh eyes, trapping our teenage irony to let the cold air of the Minnesota woods breathe into us. Then, of course, we'd kiss. We were 18, and there was no greater electricity in the world. We'd resume our walk until we made it to the peak of the trail, where Zephyr's rock stood alongside a picturesque cliff. We'd rarely see other hikers, especially when the weather was cold. A big part of the reason that we'd made the trip so frequently. That night, Alex spoke infrequently. At one point, he picked up an auburn leaf and stuck it in my hair. 
It was corny, but it worked. Romance must be unpredictable, earnest, and a little cliched. Teenagers are fantastic at meeting all three requirements. When we reached the top of the trail, the nervous electricity began to peak, as was often the case. We enjoyed the gorgeous overlook of the surrounding mountains. From there, we could see the lot where we'd parked. Alex's bright red Chevrolet Cavalier sat alone, awaiting the return of its lovesick passengers. It would have to wait. You look great today, Samantha. Alex wasn't much of a wordsmith, but that didn't matter. We fell into a kiss, every nerve burning with satisfaction and release. Then, that night, we went further. It was a first time for both of us. And it was... awkward, but still wonderful. In my memory, we talked for hours afterwards, but it might have been fifteen minutes. Time is different on the mountain. Before we made our way back down the trail... Alex surprised me with one more grand romantic moment. It was the most predictable, earnest, and cliched gesture imaginable. Look here. I got this knife last week. It's a good one, a case knife. I want to test it out. And he turned to Zephyr's Rock, the silent third party that had watched us enter a new phase of life. After a few moments of inartistic scratching... Alex stood back, and we admired his work for a moment. Alex and Sam forever. Alex and I broke up six months later. I wish I could say that we split up amicably, then went on to live wonderful lives and raise families, but that's not true. At the end, he was jealous and selfish. He accused me of cheating on him three times, then cheated on me with my cousin. By that point, I was relieved to have a guilt-free reason to get out. I stopped speaking to him, and after a week or two, he stopped trying to contact me. I moved to Illinois, where I earned a degree in sociology, which gave me excellent qualifications for my full-time job at the local Walgreens. I am far removed from the fragile awkwardness I felt in the Minnesota mountains, and I do not think of that night often. That changed last week. And here we were, staring at each other on the same mountain. I knew you'd be here. His words had a strange venom to them. I could say the same, I said. Hoping my words held the same quiet anger, I studied him for a second. The years hadn't been kind, but not entirely unkind. His thinning hair had the same swooping look, with an extra touch of gray. He'd gained a good amount of weight, but that's expected. I wasn't exactly about to squeeze into my prom dress but his eyes had a look of obstinance and anger that I thought I recognized. This was closer to the Alex that I found sneaking out my cousin's window than the gallant dweeb who'd led me to adulthood. So why are you here? I could detect some urgency in his voice. The same reason as you, I guess. You couldn't help it. He spat on the ground. 
And you... Well, that means you feel it too, I suppose. Yeah. We stood in silence, looking off at the mountains. He kicked a small rock while walking up to the precipice of the overview, and we watched it fall. I didn't hear it hit the ground. When did it start? You first. <sighs> I sighed. He hadn't changed much. A week ago, at work. I work at a pharmacy. Someone bought a Red Bull. It smelled like pine needles. Then later, when I was throwing out a bag of trash in the dumpster, I felt the air of the mountains. Exactly like it feels right now, and I smelled the pine needles again, but with an earthiness. Not earthiness. Decay. And you kept thinking about that night, didn't you? Yes. Not romanticizing it. Not even wishing that I was young again. Just... remembering. The details kept coming back. The sun was going down. And the air was cold. It was three days ago for me. Same thing. The smells, they came back first. That I couldn't think of anything else. That it was everywhere around me. How do we stop it? He looked at me again. And this time, his gaze didn't seem unkind. I don't know. Maybe something wants us to be together. Here, where we started. I sighed. He was still romantic at heart. I think we both know that this isn't about lost love. Do you have these? I rolled up my sleeve, wincing slightly from the pain. Alex looked at my arm and his eyes widened. He nodded. Then you know we're not here to lose our virginities again. And the longer we stand here, the less time we have to figure out what we're gonna do. Well, there's nothing to do. We didn't do anything wrong, except what I... what I did later to you. I'm, I'm sorry about... I know. It's okay. We were kids. But you weren't exactly innocent either. That awful look was in his eyes again. If I'd felt sorry for him at all, that was no longer the case. I didn't cheat on you, Alex. I gave you everything I had. No, you fucking didn't. He moved towards me, not aggressively, but insistently, as if by standing tall enough, he could make a stronger point. You were done with me. Pretty much as soon as we got back to the car. And we stayed together for six months after that. I could feel you pulling away. And you just... He kicked another rock. It hit a few branches on its way down the face of the cliff. Then disappeared from view. Forget it. It doesn't matter. I didn't even think of you at all for years up until this week. The wind picked up suddenly. Bending a line of white cedars towards us. I should have ended it earlier. I didn't know how. We were silent for a moment. No point in digging up old wounds. Like you said, we were kids. But I am sorry. He reached out and held my hand. That surprised me. Both the gesture and how warm and pleasant his hand felt. When he spoke next, his voice was trembling. It sounded old. And that scared me. Listen. The longer we wait, the harder it's gonna be. Don't talk like that. I'm just saying what you're thinking. No, you're not. Yes, I am. And it's just how it is anyway. 
We don't have a decision to make. Any more than those trees or that goddamn rock. You feel it, don't you? I did, but I didn't say that. My arm was burning, and so was my stomach, and my back, and my legs. My legs had the oldest ones. My forehead began to tingle. That would be the next one. Show me yours. You're gonna have to be more specific. I rolled my eyes and managed to laugh. But Alex knew what I meant, and he was already rolling up his pant leg. He was bleeding, and as I felt my clothes start to stick to my arm, I knew I was too. There it was, etched into his leg, as if carved fresh by a brand new case knife. Alex and Sam forever. Surrounded, of course, by a heart. It wasn't the same as the etching on the rock. The words were spelled out, perfectly legible with no jagged letters. Blood dripped from the wound, giving more prominence to the delicate heart frame. Alex winced with pain. I knew from his face that another one was starting somewhere. They start soft and faint, then they rise up until they erupt from the flesh. And they never stop burning. When a new one starts... You can't help but think of how much it's going to hurt. That's the worst part. I can't take it much longer. I've got dozens of them. I know you do too. At first there was a new one every few hours, but now it's every few minutes. Some big, some small, but they all hurt the same. But it's not just the pain. Stop looking at me like that. It, it, it's how everything smells and, and tastes like this fucking mountain. Hugging my kids and feeling the rotting leaves in their hair. More than any of that. It's what it says to me at night. What it tells me. I'd been wrong. That obstinate look in his eyes wasn't for me. He was trying to hide his fear. It talks to me, too. I know that, Sam. His eyes moved over me, and he shook his head. Christ, look at you. Blood was dripping out of my sleeves. I felt the etching on my forehead break through, and it seemed to sizzle with anger. I felt the blood dripping down, and I wiped it away before it reached my eyes. Tenderly, Alex patted my hand, then walked to the edge of the cliff. He leaned against the rock, gesturing at the graffiti around our heart. Clever obscenities and earnest hopes of a new generation of assholes and lovers. The only good thing about this is that they have to go through it too. Then, he locked eyes with me. We can't stay young forever, Sam. Wish we could. With that, he closed his eyes and let himself fall. I reached out for him, but I was too late. I saw his arm catch on a tree branch sending his body into unclean gyrations as it dropped. The edge of the precipice wasn't that high, but the bottom was covered in darkness. I didn't hear Alex hit the ground, and I suspected that he would be falling for a long, long time. Time is different on the mountain. You were always a little dramatic. For a moment, the burning stopped. The pain was gone. I exhaled with relief, but the scent of rotting leaves filled my senses with my next breath. 
Pain would be back, and soon. Maybe it lets you go, I thought. It doesn't let you hurt once you've given in. Maybe I didn't hear him hit the ground, because it lets you avoid that part. I didn't believe that, but I let myself think that it was true. I'll avoid the tree branch, at least. I can fall a lot better than he did. January 3rd, 2022. Molesville Gazette. Two bodies were found at the base of Dantelian Mountain, identified by authorities as Alex Hunter, 36, and Samantha Woods, 35. We're investigating this as a double suicide, and we have no evidence of foul play, Molesville Detective Robert Andrews said. Both victims broke their necks on impact and died instantly. Our prayers are with their families. Police have closed off the trail to Zeppar's Rock, where Woods and Hunter are believed to have taken their lives. The rock is well known as a lover's leap, and is the subject of several local legends. Over its history, Zeppar's Rock has been the site of 32 suicides. However, today's deaths are the first to occur at the park since 2005. In this day and age, it's not uncommon to learn about brick-and-mortar stores closing down due to the competition from online sales. In a similar way, shopping malls, once places packed with avid shoppers, are also shuttering their gates more and more. And in this tale, shared with us by author J.L. Schnell, we meet a journalism student who is investigating a local mall's sudden closure years ago. And she learns that e-commerce was the least of the mall's problems. I join Jeff Clement, Sarah Thomas, Aaron Lillis, Catabel Ansari, and Kristen DiMercurio in performing this tale. So enjoy them while you can. The food courts, the fashion stores, the movie theaters. But don't expect to find anything at the mall once called Yuma Lines. What follows are the recordings of in-person and phone interviews conducted by one Amelia Banks. Interviews with subjects Tris Sanchez, George Sugert, Caitlin Jackson Perez, and Samantha Park have been edited for brevity and clarity. Okay, real quick. I'm Amelia Banks, journalism student at NAU, and I am creating a record of the last year of the Yuma Lines Mall. With me today is Tris Sanchez, former employee of clothing store. Tris is the 43-year-old mother of three. Jesus. Do you have to make it sound like a police interview? Oh, uh, right. Sorry. Just trying to establish a record. I know, you said. Sorry. <sighs> Kid, chill. Listen, you gotta stop apologizing. Thank me for my time, but don't apologize for taking it up. What? You're nervous, 
It's fine. But if you apologize for everything, it makes me wonder why I'm wasting my time with your projects. You have to show you believe in yourself if you want people to work with you. That's... Okay. Thank you, Miss Sanchez. Triss, for God's sake. Triss, right. Okay. Okay. So, Triss, how long did you work for... And how long did you work at the Yuma Lines location? Same answer for both. Ten years. So you worked at the mall location the whole time it was open? Right. I applied three weeks, uh, four weeks before the mall opened. Got a job right away as a cashier. Worked my way up to assistant manager and then manager. Are you still employed by... Nope. I stopped working for them after the mall closed. They fired us really suddenly. Didn't have time to get a transfer. They gave me a good severance, though. You said us. Were several people fired at once? Everyone's still working at the mall. Oh, wow. How many people would you say that was? Uh, about two dozen of us. The mall closure happened over a surprisingly quick amount of time, didn't it? Yeah, it did. It died off bit by bit over about six years, but there were still a lot of stores left. Then that last year, a store closed every other week, it seemed like. And you were let go in that time period? No, we lasted to the end. Us and... 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 The it was our four staffs and the janitors that made up that last group. We were all let go on the same night. I see. Triss, when you responded to my request for interviews, you implied you knew the reason for the sudden and complete closure of the mall... Is that accurate? Mm-hmm. I know both of them. Both of them? The official one and the true one. So, you're saying, uh, the official story, which is the effect of the economic downturn, is not accurate? Eh, there were some economic factors. Malls are dying all over this country, you know. No, that might have been part of it, but it's not the complete story. I see. Of course... In the four years since the mall closed, rumors have swirled. Everything from chemical spills to mob ties to... It's not that. None of that. I'll give you the real story, and you'll probably get it from other interviewees, if you've got any. But it won't make your school paper. It's nothing they'll want, and nothing they'll believe. If you try to turn in this story, and you make it even halfway accurate, you'll get laughed out of the office. Oh, my gosh, you're serious. Uh, okay, uh, lay it on me. I am serious. You're not going to be able to spin this into something they'll accept. That's... that's fine. I'm curious. Seriously, I want to know. I used to go to that movie theater, and I always wondered why it closed. You know? So that's how you got started on the project? Yeah, so you weren't curious about the ghosts? <clears throat> I can't say I was. You never heard the rumors? No. It closed when I was 15, so I found another theater. What do you mean, ghosts? Ghosts. The dead. The monsters. Maybe they weren't ghosts. I can't imagine what kind of person Junior would have been. Junior? Yeah, George Junior. George Sugert's son. What follows is a partial interview with George Sugert, 
former head janitor at Yuma Lines Mall. This is Amelia Banks with George Sugert. George is 53 years old and was the head janitor for the entire 10 years the mall was open. George, thank you for agreeing to this interview. Of course, I'm happy to. It sounds like fun. (laughs) I hope so, but maybe not. Uh, George, real quick, I did want to let you know that you're one of three people that responded to my ad, and your name actually came up at yesterday's interview. Oh, yeah? Yes, I was speaking with Tris Sanchez. Tris Sanchez, holy shit. I love that woman. How's she doing? How are the kids? Uh, she, um, seems fine. Very serious. Her kids, I don't... We didn't talk about them much. Oh, yeah, that's fair. That's a shame. She was a lot of fun back in the day. Lines changed all of us, though. Yes, she... Um... She told me a bit about them all. More than a bit, I bet. I'm sorry? You look like someone who was told there were ghosts at the mall, and you can't believe it. Well, yes, that's a pretty accurate summation. (laughs) She told me some disturbing things, but it's all a bit hard to believe, you know? Yep, but don't worry. There weren't ghosts at Yuma Lines. There were monsters. Like George Jr. Yep, old Georgie Porgy, all pudding and pie. And he was your son? Well, I named him, and I guess I kind of figured you don't get to name things unless you're responsible for them in some way. Who is George Jr.? Jr. is the upside-down man. He lives in the vents. I'm sorry, you... you... Please understand, this is all very strange for me. Well, of course it is. You never worked at Lines, and only the extremely unlucky met Junior if they weren't around all the time. Can you tell me more about Junior? Happy to. See, he was part of the building... He was there before I ever got a locker assigned, and I was there two weeks before the place opened to the public. I saw him the first time about three days before we officially opened. I was doing a basic sweep, making sure everyone's garbage from unpacking was taken care of, you know? Uh Uh-huh. Right. Well, if you ever went to Lines... I did, actually. Oh, great. Okay, so you know that it had five levels. Four above ground, including the theater, and one below ground where we kept the gym. Uh Uh-huh. So there were elevators, and there were also closed uh, stairwells, and mostly guests didn't take them. But there were secondary stairwells built into the back hallways that employees used to get around. By the end of the first year, most of the staff, they used the guest elevators, no matter how many memos management sent out. Can you imagine getting off an eight-hour Black Friday shift and being willing to see customers again? Boy, that's how much we all hated those back stairways. Because of Junior? Hold on, hold on. Let me tell this the way it needs to be told. Oh, uh, of course. Sorry. 
So, I was on this shift, and the guest elevators weren't even powered up yet, and there were no employee elevators, but that's okay, because we all use the back stairways at this point. It was around three, I guess, just before my break, and I did that sweep, like I said. And I round the corner between the third and fourth floor, and I see this face, just barely peeking around the wall on the fourth floor, and I tell myself... George, there are a hundred people using this staircase. Of course you'll see someone. But it wasn't a normal face. I got closer, and I realized the face is white. White, white. Whiter than you or me. Chalk white. And it's big. I realize its head is the size of a platter you put a turkey on at Christmas. And it's got no hair, no ears, but human-looking eyes. Just, well, sized to match its face. And it's got a mouth, but no lips. Just this, like, thin slit. And we're looking at each other from five, six feet away, and it starts to smile. It's the biggest smile ever seen on this earth, and it's the meanest. And it just keeps stretching up. And its weird knot lips finally pull apart, and he's got teeth like a goose. You ever see them hiss? Yes. Yeah. So I threw whatever I had in my hand at him, and I fucking ran. Ran all the way to the first floor, and almost ran out the door and never came back. Why did you stay? Uh, well, shit, you, you gotta eat, you know? Continuation of interview with Tris Sanchez, manager at... Why did you respond to my call for interviews? Because I can't sit with this story alone anymore, and I can't talk to anyone who worked there. Why not? That place was poison. Working there damaged almost everyone that ever clocked in. Talking to each other is just transferring that poison back and forth... And it was poisoned because of... Junior? No. Yes. He was hurting us, but it wasn't just Junior. The whole place was bad. Built on sour ground, or made of concrete mixed with graveyard dirt, or cursed or something. I can't convey it in words to someone who didn't live it, but it... The air was violent. Everything there wanted to hurt you. How do you know others were affected the same way? The obits. As in... The The obituaries, obituaries, yes. (sighs) I recognize a lot of names. Some of them are ODs, but mostly it's heart failure. Car accident, sudden illness. Most of them were still young. Oh, God. And they tested for carbon monoxide. Chemicals in the vents? Yep. And we had monoxide meters everywhere. So everyone who worked there was terrified, and nothing was physically wrong. Bingo. Junior just seemed to like to scare us. Whatever was in there never hurt anyone physically, as far as I know. But they came close once. What? Who else responded to your ad? What? Oh, uh, uh, George Sugert, weirdly enough. That doesn't surprise me. And Caitlin Jackson Perez. Why? I don't remember Caitlin, but George is a good source for this. Here, give me your phone. I'm giving you a number. This is for Samantha Park. She worked at the store next to mine for three years. 
If you call and leave a voicemail with all your information and the fact that I sent you, she may call you back. And if she does? Then you may get to hear the worst story I ever heard from there. Excerpt from interview with Caitlin Jackson Perez, short-term employee of... Thank you for your time today, Caitlin. No problem. Just remember, it's K-A-Y-T-L-Y-N. K-A-Y-T-L-Y-N. Right. Um, so what did you want to know? Uh, whatever you want to tell me, honestly. I'm investigating why Yuma lines close so suddenly, and any information helps. Oh, okay. Um, well, I worked there when I had just turned 16. Like, I applied at the... A week after my birthday, I was so excited to make my own money. And you also got this small wide discount that even counted at the theater and the gym. So I was like, oh, yes. (laughs) So I actually only worked there for like six weeks and I left like three years before the place closed. So I don't know if I'll be much help, but I'll tell you whatever you want to know. Thank you. Did you enjoy the work? Uh, does anyone enjoy work? Oh, no. God, I sound like such a communist. Sorry. No, um, I mean, it was okay, you know? I got free pretzels, and I could afford to see a movie every weekend. And that ruled. Was it pretty busy? Oh, yeah. I only worked weekends and Friday nights, so it was always slammed. Did you, uh... Did you leave through the employee stairwell at night? Uh, why do you want to know? I'm just trying to get a feel for how it worked, and... No, you're not. You know about the monster, and you want to know if I know. (sighs) You're right. I'm sorry. I didn't want to lead you. I wanted to see if you even brought it up. Okay, well, I saw him on my last day. Is that why it was your last day? Duh, I was fucking 16 years old and no one told me to not use that creepy old staircase. And I always felt like something was following me, but nothing was. Then one day I saw fingers just wiggling, just long fucking wiggling fingers out of like one side of the vents in the walls. And I was so worried a kid had gotten like trapped or something like that and and I yanked the cover off and I saw that thing smiling at me it was rolled over on its back and it was smiling at me and I ran until I literally ran into my mom's car and I never went back I see I'm sorry for bringing that memory back but thank you again for your time don't mention it seriously ever again Additional excerpt from Interview with George Sugert. So you definitely spent the most time around Junior, it sounds like. Oh, yeah, yeah. My team would switch out pretty regularly. You know, get new guys. But I was there long enough that I knew where to watch for him. You know, it's, uh, it's kind of funny. I only ever saw him smiling after that first time, and always upside down somehow. Everyone that talked about him said the same thing, too. So maybe that first time was was the first time he saw a human, or, or something. 
When did you stop calling him the Upside Down Man? You mean you as in me, or you everyone? Both. Uh, Pretty fast, honestly, for both. I didn't tell anyone about him because, you know, I, I would sound crazy. But someone else brought him up, and soon everyone seemed to be muttering about him. So I told a few of my guys about the first experience, and it got around that I was the first one to see him. And it, well, just went from there. Did it ever feel like they blamed you for him in any way? Yeah, Yeah, but that's okay. People aren't their best when they're scared, and I knew he wasn't my fault. Earlier, you said you saw him as your responsibility. Well, yeah, but that's different. I was responsible for him. I saw him first, and maybe I'm the reason he was the way he was. So he was my responsibility to wrangle. So the first time anyone showed up looking like they got sucker punched, they got sent to me. And you did an introduction to Junior talk. Yeah, exactly. If I can be blunt... Please do. You seem less affected by the thought of Junior than Triss was. Why is that? I acclimated. I'm sorry? Well, my buddy drives to Cali any chance he can get. He's a big diver. It's his favorite thing. You can dive pretty steadily and be okay, but if you come up, you gotta go slow or you get sick. You have to spend time at each pressure level acclimating or your blood can explode. That's the bends, right? Ah, smart girl. So Junior was like that, in reverse. It was like I was going down further and further, and every time I got used to a new pressure level, it would get a little higher. But I also couldn't go back up. Every time I got used to a new level, I was stuck there. The only way to go was deeper. That's how I was able to spend ten years back there in his part of the mall. So then, what's it like living out here without him? (sighs) Absolutely terrible. Recording of a phone call placed to Samantha Park. Hi, this is Samantha. Sorry I missed your call. I'm either busy or you're a number I don't recognize. Either way, leave a message and I'll try to get back to you. Hi, Miss Park. My name is Amelia Banks. I'm a student at NAU working on a journalism project. I, uh, don't know how to say this, so I'll just jump in. Tris Sanchez sent me. I'm working on a story on the Yuma Lines Mall and would love to speak with you. If you're comfortable with that... Please give me a call at 928-451-8697. Hope to speak with you soon. Recording of a phone call between Amelia Banks and Samantha Park. Are you serious? Are you recording this? What the fuck? Hello? Is your ring-through message for real? Yes. I just want people to know. I'm sorry, who is this? Samantha Park, you called me? And now I have to consent to being recorded? Yeah, sorry. I had a professor put the fear of God into me once. You never know where someone is calling from, and if it's a different state, they have different recording laws. That could be fixed by not recording everyone that calls you. Yeah, but... But what? I'm trying to think of a non-shitty way to say, I want to. You're a terrible reporter. You woke me up, yelling at me. It's 5.43 my time. It's 5.34 my time, too. Then why are you calling me? Do you want to talk about them all or not? I... Holy shit. 
Yes, yes, I, I do. That would be great. Can you meet today? Where? Anywhere. Your choice. Are you in Yuma? Yes. Do you know the... On 16th? Yes. I'll be there in an hour. I'll see you there. Recording of interview between Amelia Banks and Samantha Park. Thank you for this. I'm doing this for Tris. For six years, she was like a second mom to me. And if she sent you, maybe you'll be okay to talk to about this. I'll do my best. A waitress interrupts at this point. The next minute, 18 seconds, involve their drink orders. Okay, so I spoke to Tris and also to George Sugert and a woman that worked there for six weeks when she was a teenager. So, you know about Junior? Yes, uh, a lot about him. You don't know a lot about Junior, unless you worked with him. Oh, well, I heard you saw something worse. Than Junior, I mean. Obviously. Waitress returns with drinks. Next two minutes, 23 seconds is small talk and food orders. Sort of. I saw Junior repeatedly, of course. How frequently, would you say? At least once every six months. Were they ever tied to anything? As far as you could tell? Like what? Uh, I guess day of the month, or if it was a full moon, things like that. No, not that I ever knew, but... Okay, so a lot of people knew they had a sighting coming up. What do you mean? Um, you know how you feel when you're coming down with something, but you're not actually sick yet? Yes. Like that. You'd just feel in your joints that you'd see Junior soon. Did that help you avoid it at all? No. You weren't supposed to. Me and Kurt tried. I'm positive that's why it happened. What happened? <sighs> Kurt and I got stuck doing inventory one night. It was a small enough store they wouldn't budget more people for it, even though it meant we didn't leave till close to 2 a.m. We'd both indicated to each other, because you learn to do it without talking about it, that we had junior encounters coming up. We both felt like they were close. We were both tired of being scared. So we took the elevator down. George said a lot of people took the elevator down. Yeah, with customers. This was just me and Kurt. Did that make a difference? Yes. Okay. So, what happened next? We parked on the first floor. Most employees did. So we hit one. And the elevator barely moved before it came to a weird stop. Shaky. Shuddering. It felt less like a machine and more like an animal. The display said three. And the doors opened. I was looking out on a bay of windows that looked out on darkness. Pitch black. No lights. No nothing out there. But there are always a ton of lights in that area. And there are no windows in that hallway. There can't be, physically. That wall is connected to the stairwell, and it's solid concrete. What? And I felt like... Like I was dying. Not just like I was in danger, but like I could feel my cells getting ready to die all at once. Like the air was poisonous. And Kurt was high all the time, I think, to deal with it. And he just laughed and started to walk out, said, I guess we're taking the stairs. And I grabbed the back of his shirt right before his second foot landed on the hallway because I knew, I knew that if he took that step out, 
the doors would close and I would never see him again. And I remember the feeling, every part of it, how his shirt tightened in my hand as it hit his throat, how I got dragged forward one step by his momentum. I remember him turning towards me, half in the doorway, and how he stopped when he was facing the hallway. His face looked like a corpse. I yanked him in, and I hit the door close button over and over again, and I heard a dozen footsteps sprinting down the hall, and I think I screamed at the door. Then I realized Kurt's foot was still blocking it and that he was messing up the sensor, and I threw him across the elevator. This six-foot-two healthy guy. And as the doors were closing, I saw a shadow of something I didn't recognize. And then we were on the first floor. And that's my story. Waitress arrives with food. Next two minutes, 30 seconds is filled with noticeably subdued small talk. Did, uh, did Kurt ever say what he saw? Once. I gave him a ride home, since the buses had stopped running. He was quiet almost all the way home. Right before I pulled up to his place, he said, it was all faces and horses and hair. I dropped him off, and I never saw him again. Two years ago, he OD'd. Jesus. Was it... I mean, do you think... I don't think it was the only reason. But I don't think it helped. The rest of the meal is eaten in silence. Excerpt from Interview with Tris Sanchez. This is all a lot to take in. And I'll be honest, even if it's all true... It is. Why did they close them all so fast? Everyone had been putting up with Junior for years... What changed? In that last year, the feeling got worse. A few stores would drop here or there due to money issues. And it was like because it was spread out over fewer people, it would affect everyone more. Which just made each closure make the next one more likely. That makes sense. What happened with those last stores, though? Do you have any ideas? I do, actually. You remember the basement level where the gym was? Yes. Its leasing contract with the building was weird somehow, and as a result, there were no employee areas that connected to it. The only way in or out was to drive or take the elevator or the stairs down to that level and enter through the front door. Okay. Well, when it was just the last group of us, we started leaving and entering as a group. No one went anywhere alone. You could tell it was a worse idea every day. We also started parking on the basement level because it gave us an excuse to use the customer elevator, and most of the time, that was the safest. Most of the time? Samantha will tell you if she wants. Okay. Well, we went down there, and the big window next to the glass door was shattered, completely out. We sort of complained about teenagers and how destructive that was. And then Jerry, who worked at the theater, suddenly looks really scared and says we should go. And we looked, and we saw what he saw, and we all peeled out of there. And the next morning, I got the call from corporate. What was it? What did you see? The glass was broken outwards. The complete recordings were found on a flash drive in the parking lot of a well-traveled fast food restaurant. At this time, we have been unable to locate Amelia Banks or find any record of Yuma Lines Mall. And while we have located all of the interview subjects, all have declined to comment.
These days, finding work, especially in construction, often means traveling from job site to job site. But you gotta make money, right? And finding a place to stay in a new area sometimes means finding lodging in a rather unique way, like through Craigslist. But as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author Thomas Diaz, there is always a price to pay for those great deals, and you'd better have the money for it. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers, Jesse Cornett, Dan Zapula, and Danielle McRae. So listen, don't ask questions, just do what you're told. Open your wallet and pay the fine. I've been in construction my whole working life. I started straight out of school six years ago, and I've spent much of that time on the move. Not a lot of people know this, but when the job ends, craft workers are mostly laid off. Pipe fitters, carpenters, crane operators, all gone. That means we need to pick up our tools and head to a different job site, hoping to get hired back on. Since the money is good, that's what I do. It's the life I've always known. Every few years, I just travel from one side of the country to the other, hoping to find work. After my last job ended, which was about a week ago, I received word from my old boss that this oil company was hiring. He said that since I was a good worker, I was just hired. Just show up and get to work. Told him to give me a few days and I'll be down there as soon as I could. As for the location, it was some small town out in Texas called Port Arthur. I'd never heard of the place before, but that was nothing new. Most plants are built in the middle of nowhere. This is in case they explode. The loss of life would be minimal compared to the same disaster in a city. The next morning, I packed up my stuff and started driving. On the road, I called and spoke to some guy named Trevor over the phone. I found him on Craigslist. He was renting a room, and the price was about what I wanted to pay. (laughs) I'd love to have you. I'll get some clean sheets on that bed and an extra set of blankets. It gets a little chilly this time of year. Oh, sir, thank you so much. I'll see you when I get there. After driving for about 10 hours, I finally arrived at Brookfield, and it was nothing like how I expected. I'd been to some shitty towns before, but this one right here, their downtown could have easily been made into a setting for the walking dead. Most of the buildings I drove past looked either abandoned or half demolished. Some had girders sticking out of the sides like exposed ribs. Electric poles lay broken in the streets. One place that might have been a gift shop looked like it had burned down the night before. Parts of the blackened wood were still smoldering. The only buildings I saw that were intact were a police station and a waffle house. Also, directly in the center of town, there was a random graveyard. Not the sort with a freshly mowed lawn and neat tombstones set at regular intervals. This one had crosses, the kind made from two sticks roped together, buried in the muddy soil. Mounds of dirt sat next to freshly dug graves. Trees, their limbs twisted and gnarled, were scattered through the area, casting misshapen shadows. One of them even had a noose hanging from one of its branches. It swayed gently back and forth. I couldn't help but wonder if some kids had put it up as some sort of sick joke, or if it was meant as a threat. 
a threat for whom, I had no idea. Swallowing around the tightness in my throat, I continued on. I followed the GPS on my phone and arrived at the place listed. Trevor was nowhere to be found. Instead, there was a handwritten note taped to the door. It read, Sam, sorry I couldn't be there. Something came up out of town that I gotta take care of. Just hold on to the rent for a few days. I'll collect it as soon as I get back. Keys in the potted plant. Head on in and make yourself at home. Trevor. There was an arrow at the bottom, drawn in Sharpie, pointing down and to the left. I wouldn't exactly have called the object beneath a potted plant. More accurately, I would have said that it was a pot of dusty soil with cobwebs and a small bare branch sticking out of the center. I jerked a shoulder, dug the key out of the dirt, and did what the paper said. The next morning, I made myself a pot of coffee in the kitchen. I found myself studying the pictures on the walls and the elderly gentleman who featured in a number of them. I assumed this was Trevor. In one picture, he was fishing. In another, he was at a family function, swinging at a piñata. He had a kind face, smiling in every photograph. I thought that once I met the guy, we'd probably get along nicely. After pouring a cup of joe, I headed outside, ready to leave for work, when I saw something on my windshield. There was an envelope placed under my wiper. Confused, I collected the envelope, pulled the paper out, and read it. It said I'd been fined a hundred dollars. Literally, you have been fined one hundred dollars. No explanation. What's more, it was written on a normal sheet of wide rule loose leaf paper in red crayon. Listed on the bottom of the paper was an address where I was supposed to mail the cash, check, or money order. What the shit is this? I thought to myself, flipping the paper over and inspecting the back. It had to be a prank, right? So I did what anybody would have done. I shrugged and tossed it in the back seat where it landed on the floorboard. Then I went to my new job site, where I worked as a crane operator. Most of the day, I was up in the cab transporting steel. It's a hard, lonely life, but I was okay with that. It was good money. I didn't even mind the fact that I didn't get toilet breaks. I'd just carry a bottle. High up in the cab, I saw the other craft workers milling about, doing their jobs. Flagging, sanding, and pipe laying. Since it took me 30 minutes to climb out of the crane, most were already gone by the time I got down. As for that odd note, I wanted to mention it to my old boss, ask him if he'd ever heard of it, but it seemed like he hadn't come in that day. So I just got on with things, finished for the day, and went home. The following morning when I went out to my car, all of the windows had been busted out. The windshield looked like somebody had taken a sledgehammer to it. To say I was pissed was an understatement. What the fuck? I said to no one, throwing my arms wide, approaching my vehicle. Once again, placed underneath the wiper was another envelope. This one read, Warning, fine is now $200. Pay or you will be sent home. Of all the things I've been through in my life, this was probably the weirdest shit ever. Especially bizarre was I hadn't heard the glass shatter that night. Surely I thought I would have heard it considering I was a light sleeper and my bedroom window was only a few feet from the car. 
Fueled with anger, I crumpled up the letter. I wanted to blame Trevor for this, but the guy hadn't come home yet. I was still the only one there at night. So if it wasn't him, then who was leaving these fines? Still pissed, I removed what was left of the windshield, got in my car, and drove to the address listed on the sheet. In my opinion, this type of behavior warranted an ass-whooping, and I was ready to give it. But when I got to the location, it was not exactly what I'd been expecting. It was the damn graveyard in the center of town. My blood chilled as I slowed the car to a stop. The eeriness of the situation made the hair on my arm stand on end, and a twinge of nausea twist my gut. I didn't know what to do, so I stared through the emptiness where my windshield should have been for a few minutes, gaze wandering across the grave markers. Eventually I got myself together. The police station was across the street, so that was where I went. It was convenient, considering I needed to fill out a police report to file to my insurance anyway. Inside the station, I found a fit, middle-aged police officer sitting behind a wooden desk. The officer typed away at his computer. How can I help you? I put the envelope down on the desk. Yeah, well, I got this fine, and... Silence fell across the entire police station. Behind the officer, every head in the room swiveled in my direction. Concern colored all their faces. Some huffed out worried breaths. Others quickly returned their attention to their papers, scribbling fast, avoiding eye contact with me. One guy looked angry, like he really wanted to kick my ass. The officer swallowed. And, uh, where did you find this exactly? Somebody left it on my car. His eyes widened as some type of realization flashed across his face. His hand bounced, knocking on the wood. What is it? I asked, feeling my heart rate elevate. That nausea surged again. He cleared his throat, patted the envelope on the desk, and slid it back to me. What is your name, son? Sam. Sam Charles. He nodded. Well, Sam, I'm going to need you to pay this. What? You're going to have to pay this. I don't understand. The man leaned forward with a hard stare. His hand landed on his gun. Is there a problem here? What the hell? I swallowed, trying to regain my composure. Uh, well, can I just give you the cash then? No. I was so lost. Well, huh? Why the hell not? Because you have to mail it in. What? You getting loud with me, boy? I blinked. Huh? Pay the fine. Now get the hell out of here before I put you behind bars. Are we clear? Leaving the police station, I was so confused I actually started scratching the back of my head. This was so insane that I didn't know what else to do. I needed something. Answers or some shit. Or at least to find out who was doing this. I tried calling my old boss to ask him for advice. No answer. I even tried calling Trevor. Same. So I drove 50 miles out of town and stopped at Walmart. There I picked up an outdoor Nest camera and headed back to my place. After setting up the camera, I installed the app on my phone and paid the subscription service to actively record all movements. And then I fell asleep. That night around 3am, my phone buzzed, alerting me there was motion outside. Half awake, I clicked open the app and saw a truck pull to a stop in the driveway. I recognized the man who got out from the pictures I'd seen. 
so I knew it was Trevor. He slammed his door and made his way into the house. I considered talking to him, introducing myself, but the guy was probably tired. It was 3am after all. So I closed out the app and went back to sleep. That morning, as I came out of my bedroom, I saw something in the hall that made me freeze. Blood. I was almost sure it was blood. It had that smell. A trail of splatters led to the kitchen. I followed. And there I found Trevor. He was lying on the kitchen counter, chest cracked open like an alien had burst out of it. Ribs spread, viscera scattered all over the tile and sink. His face was twisted in horror. His mouth wide open, his lips stretched in a silent howl of agony. On the floor, there was a game of hopscotch, the numbered triangles and squares drawn in blood. Trevor's heart was tossed into the number five. To the right of it, a part of his intestine just laid there abandoned as if someone maybe had been using it as a jump rope. Bloody handprints in the shape of a smiley face were smeared onto the wall. In the corner, his severed fingers and toes were stacked in this fucked up game of Jenga. In Trevor's hand was a piece of paper that I was all too familiar with. For some reason, it was the cleanest thing in the kitchen. There wasn't a speck of blood on it. The letter hung down low, angled so that the wording faced me. It read, This is the cost. Fighting either a panic attack or a nervous breakdown, I staggered back and vomited onto the floor. I sucked in a huge breath, trying to force myself to calm down, but I couldn't hold it against the next rush of vomit, and I spewed the rest of my dinner onto the kitchen floor. <coughs> Coughing and gasping, I wiped my mouth with the back of my hand and scrambled away from the body. After gathering what little rationality I had left, I fished my phone out of my pocket and dialed those three numbers. What's your emergency? I took a deep breath. The air still smelled of blood and vomit. Hi, uh, uh, my my roommate. He's he's dead. What is the address? Two one two Silver. Two one two Silver Lake Drive. A man is dead. Her voice sounded terse, maybe even annoyed. Y- yes. How did you? This is why you pay the damn. Fine. So I did. I mailed in a check that night and got the hell out of Dodge. I'm used to living on the move, but I've never packed up so quickly. I just left the body just lying there as I cleared out. Someone else's problem. I'd had enough of this bullshit. Screw that creepy ass town, the job, and that damn graveyard. I drove all night heading for my parents' house, where I knew they had had my old bedroom waiting. I didn't want to wake them, so when I got there I used my spare key to let myself in. Something was waiting for me, on my old bedroom door. My blood froze. Scotch taped to the wood was a note. Same familiar handwriting, same red crayon. And I realized that I'd made a mistake. All along, the notes had been delivered to Trevor's address. Trevor had been the one to die. Perhaps whoever, whatever, had sent those fines, they hadn't meant any of it for me. But now I had their attention. The note read, Who are 
you. Numbly, I pushed the door open. I was just tired. I didn't know what to do, what the hell I'd gotten myself into. I had the idea that I could collapse into bed and figure something out later. Inside, the walls, the bed, the desk, all of them were plastered with hundreds of wide rule, loose leaf paper. Who are you? They demanded. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? In our final tale, we meet a graduate student, a forensic anthropologist, to be specific, who was called in to assist at a crime scene. Sounds like a pretty ordinary occurrence, no? But as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author K.G. Lewis, the circumstances surrounding this strange case out in the mountains are outside the expertise of this student. Frankly, outside the expertise of pretty much anyone. Performing this tale are Lindsay Russo, Mick Wingert, Peter Lewis, and Wafia White. So understand this. Sometimes there are things far beyond human understanding. Keep that in mind if you find yourself on Elkhorn Trail. Excuse me. The officer behind the reception desk was busy filling out some paperwork and hadn't seen me approach. He stopped what he was doing, looked at me briefly, and then continued filling out the form in front of him. How can I help you? I'm here to see Sheriff Holt. Is he expecting you? He sounded bored and disinterested. His paperwork was clearly more important to him than helping me. He should be. When the officer didn't say anything else, I added, I'm from the university. He set his pen down and looked at me, eyeing me up and down as he reached for the phone on the corner of his desk. Once he had the receiver in his hand, he pushed a button on the base, waited a moment, and then said, There's someone here to see you. So she's from the university? He gestured down the hall with the phone before hanging it up. You can go back. Thank you. I said, turning and walking in the indicated direction. You don't look like a professor. Sheriff Holt seemed to have noted my young appearance as he stepped out of his office to greet me. I'm not. I'm one of her graduate assistants. Oh. He sounded disappointed. Professor Klein gets a lot of requests for site evaluations, but most of them wind up being a waste of her time. 
That's why I'm here, to assess the site and report back to her on whether or not you found anything of historical importance. The sheriff didn't reply. He just stood there and stared at me. I could tell he was judging my qualifications based on my looks. I assure you, I am qualified to appraise this site, but if you'd prefer someone else... I turned as if to leave. That won't be necessary. I'll have Davis take you to this site. He pointed at the officer sitting at the reception desk. I turned back to face the sheriff. If you give me directions, I can drive myself. I didn't want to be stuck with Officer Happy. Sorry, I can't let you do that. That area is still an active crime scene. What? That was news to me. Why didn't you mention that in the email you sent? Because it doesn't change why you are here. And why exactly am I here? Come inside. He walked into his office. And uh, shut the door behind you. I did as he instructed, standing with my back against the door, waiting for him to explain. Have a seat. He gestured at one of the chairs in front of his desk before taking a seat himself. I dropped into the closest chair, wishing I had turned down the professor's request for me to do the site appraisal. So what I'm about to tell you, it doesn't leave this office, hmm? Sheriff Holt's face was a mask of seriousness. Instead of replying, I pinched my thumb and index finger together and ran them across my lips in a zipping motion. My lips were sealed. He kept his eyes on me as he picked up a file from the corner of his desk. I got the impression he was trying to decide how much he should tell me. Last weekend, uh, a couple of hikers went missing in the Northern Pass region of the Anticline mountain range. He opened the folder and pulled out a sheet of paper, setting it on the desk in front of me. I picked up the sheet and examined it. It was a printout of a topological map. In the upper left corner of it was a red circle. Sheriff Holt pointed at the back of the sheet. That where we found their bodies. Do you know how they died? We have some theories, but that doesn't concern you. And the reason you're here is because of this. He reached into the folder, pulled out another sheet of paper, and held it out to me. I set the map down on the desk and took the offered sheet. On it was a crudely drawn picture of some weird-looking totem-like structure adorned with various sets of antlers. He gestured at the sheet in my hands. The bodies were found near that. Do you have any photos of it? I set the drawing down on top of the map. It wasn't going to be of much use to me. I needed to see the real thing. I do... He reached into the folder and produced a stack of pictures, dropping them on top of the other two sheets. I don't understand. I flipped through the pictures. They were all blurry and indistinct. We took close to 200 photos at the scene, 
and they all came out like that. He pointed at the photos. Was there something wrong with the camera? He shook his head. I had three different officers taking pictures that day. I even took some myself. He picked up his phone and opened his photo app, chose one of the photos, and then held the phone out to me. It didn't matter what we used to take the pictures. This was always the result. He gestured at the blurry image on his phone. That's weird. I couldn't even begin to speculate on why something like that would happen. That's not the only weird thing going on out there. He set his phone on the desk and collected the drawing and photos he had given me, sliding them back into the case folder. Like what? You'll... you'll have to see for yourself. He put the folder back on the corner of his desk. When he noticed me staring at him, he added, You wouldn't believe me if I told you. Let me grab my gear. I said to Deputy Davis after we'd exited the station. He was already halfway across the parking lot before I could stop him, clearly not excited about having to drive me out to the site. I ran over to my car, popped the trunk open, and grabbed the small duffel bag that contained all of the equipment I would need to assess the site. Before I did anything else, I unzipped the bag and pulled out the battered fedora that was sitting on top of everything else. After reshaping the crown of the hat so that it was no longer crushed, I placed it on my head. What's with the hat? My dad gave it to me before I went on my first dig. I reached up and touched the brim. It was meant to be a joke. Did he give you a whip, too? Davis smirked, making the obvious Indiana Jones comparison. Nope. I looked him in the eyes before I continued. He died before he got the chance. Oh. Davis quickly averted his eyes. Everyone who saw the hat had to make some sort of sarcastic comment about it. The quickest way to get them to move past that was to mention my dead dad. It was the last present he ever bought me. That's why I wear it when I'm out in the field. Deputy Davis didn't respond as he turned away and unlocked his 4x4, the vehicle of choice for most law enforcement offices located in remote mountainous regions. Where should I put this? I lifted the duffel bag a little higher. He looked back over his shoulder, then nodded toward the back seat of the SUV. You can toss it in the back. I walked around to the passenger side, opened the back door, and tossed the bag onto the seat before climbing into the front. We drove off in silence, Davis keeping his eyes on the road ahead, me checking out what the tiny, one-light town had to offer while we drove through it on our way up the mountain. Once we left the city limits, and all there was to see were trees, I turned to Davis. Have you been out to the site? I was the first officer on the scene. 
What do you think it is? He turned his head and looked at me. Nothing good. At the moment Davis was looking at me, a large buck bounded into the road. Look out! I grabbed hold of the door handle and planted my feet on the floorboard, bracing myself for the impact I knew was coming. The deputy whipped his head forward. Shit! He slammed on the brakes and yanked the steering wheel to the side, trying to avoid the deer. But it was too late. There was a loud thud and the sound of breaking glass. When I opened my eyes again, the deer was lying in the center of the road about ten feet in front of the SUV, his antlers broken and his body bleeding from several gaping cuts. Are you okay? I'm fine. I looked down at my trembling hands. Just a little shaken up. He reached over and unbuckled his safety belt, flipping on the flashing red and blue lights on top of the vehicle as he opened the door and stepped out. Once my heart stopped racing, I got out and joined him. Could have been worse. He was standing in front of the SUV with his hands on his service belt, surveying the damage the deer had done. Other than a broken headlight, the vehicle, miraculously, didn't sustain much damage. From the amount of blood on the bumper guard, it was clear it had absorbed most of the impact. I turned around to look at the body of the deer, feeling bad that it had to die like that. As I moved, something clattered at my feet. I looked down and saw pieces of the buck's broken antlers scattered on the ground around me. I knelt and picked up the nearest piece, the one I had bumped with my shoe. I need to call this into the station. Davis returned to the SUV. While the deputy reported the accident, I continued to pick up the larger pieces of antler I found. There were four in total, each one about the size of my hand. I couldn't put the pieces in my pocket, so I took off the fedora and placed them in the band around the hat. One in the front, one in the back, and two on the sides. I wanted to keep the pieces because I felt partly responsible for the deer's death. In my strange way, I thought I was honoring him. When Deputy Davis returned, he took one look at the antlers I had secured in my hat, opened his mouth to say something, but then thought better of it, shaking his head and looking away instead. We should get back in the car. Shouldn't we move it out of the road first? I pointed at the body of the deer. He looked down at his watch. In about a minute, we won't have to. What's going to happen in a minute? How much did the sheriff tell you about what's going on here? He looked over at me briefly before looking back at the body of the deer. He told me about the bodies found at the site and showed me the blurry photos. He didn't tell you about the deer? Another quick look over at me before returning his attention to the deer. No, he didn't. What about them? Watch. 
Davis pointed his finger at the dead deer. At first, I didn't know what I was supposed to be watching for. But then I saw it. It started as a twitch in the lower part of the deer's hind legs. As I watched, the other legs began twitching. Before long, the entire body was in motion as the deer struggled to stand on its broken legs. It's still alive? I balked at the idea, wondering how that could even be possible given the mangled state of the deer's body. Deputy Davis kept his eyes on the animated carcass. It ain't alive, I can promise you that. How is that even possible? Deputy Davis shrugged in response. We were hoping you could answer that. I'm just a forensic anthropologist. This is beyond my area of expertise. I gestured wildly at the reanimated deer. You should have called an exorcist or a shaman. We did. They aren't scheduled to arrive until next week. You're the only one who could get here on short notice. While we talked, the deer had gotten to its feet, its broken limbs forcing it to move in an awkward, disjointed way as it turned to face us. I pulled my phone out of my pocket and pointed it at the deer, intending to film it. Don't do that. They don't like being filmed. I reluctantly put the phone back in my pocket. Get in the car. He waved at me to move back as he slowly made his way to the driver's side of the SUV. I hurried back into the passenger seat. Can't you shoot it or something? Put it out of its misery? The last person who tried that wound up in the hospital. He climbed into the vehicle. But it didn't stop the deer didn't even slow it down. Just pissed it off. You can't just let it wander off. I motioned at the deer who, after a few moments, had decided we weren't going to be a problem and began shambling off into the woods. It's not going far. Davis put on his seatbelt and started the car. I also buckled my belt. How do you know that? because it's going to the same place all the other deer went. Where's that? I knew the answer before I even asked the question. The same place we're going. He put the car in gear so we could continue our drive up the mountain. When Deputy Davis pulled into the gravel-lined lot and parked the SUV... I wasn't sure I wanted to get out. Not with zombie deer walking around the forest. Davis sensed my unease. You okay? (sighs) Yeah, I just need a minute to process what happened back there. Take your time. It's a crazy thing to witness. I remember the first time I saw one. (sighs) You handled it a lot better than I did. I was surprised by the compassion in his voice and started to think that maybe I had been a little harsh with my initial assessment of him. 
do all the deer become zombies like that when they die? I jerked my thumb over my shoulder in the direction we had come from. Davis shook his head. Only the bucks. When did it start happening? As far as we can tell, it started around the time we found the bodies. Maybe the day before or the day after. He shrugged. It's hard to tell for sure. I didn't say anything for a few minutes. We can leave if you want. No one would blame you if you didn't feel comfortable going out there. He nodded towards the woods. His comment offended me. Sure, I was a little scared, but I was also curious. I wasn't sitting there because I was too scared to get out of the vehicle. I was sitting there because I was trying to figure out the best way to proceed. I had just witnessed something that could only be explained as a supernatural event. I was torn on whether or not I should call the university and ask for some additional help before going out to the site, or if I should go through with my initial assessment and call them afterward. I'm fine. I snapped at him, a little more forcefully than I'd intended. While I decided what to do, I sat there staring at the large wooden sign in front of us. Elkhorn Trail, it said. Underneath the words was a large arrow pointing to the right, indicating where the trail started. That sign looks new. I nodded at it, changing the subject. It is. All of this is new. He gestured at our surroundings and all of the improvements that had been made, making the spot a tourist destination for hikers. The trail's only been open since the beginning of summer. Why was this spot chosen? They didn't build it. It's not man-made. It's an old game trail that was used by the caribou when they used to migrate through this area. At least that's what Hoffman told me. He's one of the park rangers who work out here. An old game trail? Do you know how long ago it was abandoned? I was trying to figure out why the caribou had stopped using the trail. I have no idea. Long before I was born is all I can say for certain. While Davis and I talked, I had decided to take a look at the site before calling the university. The more information I had to give them, the better prepared they would be when they arrived. Okay, I'm ready. I opened the door and stepped out onto the lot. Davis got out and walked to the back of the SUV. I followed him and watched as he opened the trunk and lifted the floorboard, revealing a hidden compartment where several firearms were locked in place. Don't you need to grab your gear? I want to check out the site first. I pulled my phone out of my back pocket. This is all I need right now. You know that won't work out there, right? I know. I put the phone away and gave him a lopsided grin. It doesn't just take pictures, though. I use it to take notes, too. He turned away from me and used his keys to unlock a shotgun, pulling it free before choosing the compartment. When he saw my raised eyebrows, he said, Just in case. Apparently, I wasn't the only one feeling a little nervous being out there. The sound of branches breaking drew our attention to the woods. 
Looks like our friend decided to show up. He gestured at the dead deer as it came into view, lumbering through the woods. What happens to them when they get there? I didn't want any surprises when we got to the site. For all I knew, there could be a herd of the undead things wandering around the area. One was bad enough. You'll see. He made his way over to the start of the trail, where a line of police tape had been strung across the entrance. I followed a step behind him. I'd prefer if you'd just tell me. He glanced back at me for a moment. Nothing happens to them. What do you mean by nothing? Davis ducked under the police tape, then turned and waited for me to catch up. Once they get to where they're going, they just stop. They stop? I didn't like the sound of that. Davis started walking again after I ducked under the police tape. Are you saying there's a bunch of dead deer just standing around out there? They're not standing. They're not even alive any longer, or undead, or whatever state they were in. He made a dismissive gesture with his hand. We hurry and get there before him. The deputy pointed through the trees at the barely visible deer that was ambling away from us through the forest. You can see what happens for yourself. This way. Deputy Davis paused in front of a tree that had a piece of police tape tied around it. We had been walking in silence for the past 15 minutes before he stopped. I took off my hat and wiped my brow. Give me a moment to catch my breath. The trail was a bit more arduous than I had expected, and from the look of the terrain where we were headed, it wasn't going to get any easier. A minute later, I put my hat back on. All right, let's go. We left the trail and followed the police tape that was tied around the occasional tree trunk, marking the way to our destination. The path led us down a valley into the entrance of a narrow rock-lined ravine. Just through there. Davis gestured ahead with the shotgun. Are we going to fit? The path into the ravine couldn't have been much wider than a foot. We'll fit. He turned sideways and slid between the rock walls. I heard him grunt a few times as he had to suck in his gut and force his way down the path. I was much smaller than him and didn't have any problems when I followed behind him. What were those people doing back here? We were well off the trail, and that had made me wonder how the hikers had ended up so far off course. Probably looking for one of the old gold mines rumored to be out here. Gold mines? I didn't see anything about gold mines when I was researching the area. Before I came, I looked up the history of the town and the surrounding mountains, looking for anything that might hold a clue to the historical significance of the site I was being asked to evaluate. Davis stopped moving and turned his head towards me. It's a local fairy tale. No one's ever found any gold out here. He continued to sidestep along the path. At least not to my knowledge, they haven't. That hasn't stopped anyone from looking. 
His explanation made sense. If the hikers really were looking for some fabled gold mine, the ravine seemed like a perfect place to search for it. As we continued, I began to catch faint whiffs of decay that got stronger the further along the trail I got. Oh, that smell is horrid. Is that what I think it is? It's not so bad once you get out here in the open. Deputy Davis had finally reached the other side of the narrow path and was standing at the exit waiting for me, the shotgun resting on his shoulder. When I stepped out next to him, the first thing I noticed was that we were still in the ravine. The walls were just much further apart where we were. The second thing I noticed was the mound of deer carcasses piled off to the side. That's disgusting. I held my hand over my nose. The smell had gotten slightly better out in the open, like Davis had said, but not by much. You asked what happened to them once they got here? He gestured at the pile of dead deer. Now you know. Before I could reply, we heard a rustling sound coming from above us. Davis and I looked up. Walking along the top edge of the ravine was the deer we'd hit. You might want to step back. I didn't need to be told twice. I retreated to the opposite side of the ravine and watched as the deer hobbled along until it was right above the mound of its dead relatives. Then it just stepped out into the open air, falling on top of the pile where its body was impaled by the antlers of the deer who had made the leap before him. It stopped moving after that. I pulled out my phone and began lining up a picture. Once I had entered the mound in the frame, I snapped the shot. When I went to look at the photo, all I saw was a blurry mass of colored shadows. Told you. I had to try. I put the phone back in my pocket. How far to the site from here? It's just around the corner. Davis gestured around the mound of deer to where the ravine turned sharply to the right. After you. We had to scoot along the rock wall to avoid tripping over the tangle of deer legs and antlers sticking out of the bottom of the mound as we made our way to the other side of it. How many carcasses do you think are in here? I hooked my thumb over my shoulder at the mound as we made our way around the bend. It's gotta be at least a dozen. I was about to agree with him, but forgot what I was gonna say when the sight came into view. What I said instead was... Holy shit. Standing before me was a large totemic structure that appeared to be constructed entirely out of antlers and bones. It was about three feet wide and ten feet tall. Sitting atop it was an enormous deer skull with the biggest set of antlers I have ever seen sprouting from it. I pointed at the skull. That looks prehistoric. There's no way something that big could still be roaming around these woods. If there is, I've never seen one. I began to walk around the pillar of bones, examining it from multiple angles, looking for anything that might give me a hint as to why it was here or who had built it. 
Deputy Davis stood by and silently watched as I completed my circuit. I know what it is. I looked over at Davis. See this? I gestured at the ring of antlers sticking out of the middle of the structure. They were bunched together in such a way that they formed a semi-flat surface that I assumed functioned as a table. It's a sacrificial altar. The bodies of the hikers, they were mutilated, weren't they? You know I can't tell you that. I'm right, aren't I? Suppose they were mutilated. What would that tell you? Honestly, not much. But it would confirm that I'm right about this being an altar. I looked up at the structure. An altar to what? Satan? Mm, doubtful. There's nothing here to tie it to any kind of satanic cult. It could be Native American, but that doesn't feel right either. The tribes that used to live in this area weren't known for that kind of thing. As I spoke, I continued to examine the altar, looking for any identifying features I might have missed on my first pass. That's when I noticed there was a hollow area beneath the table-like collection of antlers. There's something in there! I squatted down, trying to see into the dark recess, but was unable to because of all the shadows. I reached my hand into the structure. What are you doing? Whatever's in there might help me identify whoever built this thing. Got something! I wrapped my hand around an oddly shaped object about the size of a baseball. I pulled the object free from the cage of bones and antlers around it, standing up as I examined it. It was mostly gray, with a few whitish spots scattered across it. One end was tapered. The other end had a collection of knobby protrusions sprouting from it. It wasn't until I saw the network of thin lines running over the surface of the object that I realized what I was holding. Oh my god. I let the object fall to the ground. That's a heart. I wiped my hand on my shirt, trying to get rid of the unclean sensation I was feeling. Davis walked over and nudged the petrified organ with the tip of his shoe. We found one of these with the bodies of the hikers. He looked over at me before turning his eyes to the altar. Now we know where it came from. There's more in there. I motioned to the spot where I had pulled the heart free. When I had reached into the recess, I could feel multiple objects stacked on top of each other. Deputy Davis pulled a handkerchief from his pocket before squatting down to pick up the heart, cradling the shotgun in the crook of his other arm. We should take this back to the station. He got back to his feet. Yeah, we should probably go. Before either of us could turn and walk away, the altar began to move. At first, I thought I had done something to make it unstable, causing it to fall over. That's not what was happening. It wasn't falling. It was changing shape. Run! Davis dropped the cloth-wrapped heart and cocked the shotgun. I wanted to run. My mind was screaming at me to run, but my body wouldn't respond. 
I was frozen in place as the altar transformed into a nightmarish creature made out of bones and antlers, with that gigantic prehistoric deer skull becoming its head. It reached out with one of its long, spindly arms, trying to grab Davis, but the deputy managed to fire off a shot, deflecting the appendage. Undeterred, the creature just used its other arm to grab him, wrapping its antler-point fingers around his head and lifting him off the ground with ease. Davis struggled against the creature's grip, dropping the shotgun as he tried in vain to pry himself loose. He fought with every ounce of strength he could muster, but it wasn't enough. The creature clenched its fist. There was a sickening pop as the deputy's skull was crushed, showering me with blood and bits of gore. That's when I closed my eyes and screamed. When I opened my eyes again, I was hovering in the air, suspended around the waist by the creature's hand. It was staring at me through the hollow pits of its eye sockets. I waited for it to crush the life out of me, but it didn't. It set me on the ground at its feet, next to the body of Deputy Davis. As I stood there, staring up at the monster, I reached out and gently touched the top of my head. That's when I realized I was still wearing my hat. The antlers. I reached up and touched the bits of broken antlers I had placed in the band of my hat. The creature stood there, watching me. It's confused. That had to be why it didn't kill me. Something about the antlers in my hat had given it pause. What are you? What do you think I am? I took a hesitant step backward, kicking something behind me. I looked down at my feet and saw that I had knocked the old heart free from the handkerchief. At the sight of the heart, the creature knelt and leaned towards me. I braced myself, thinking it had finally decided to kill me. That's not what it did. Instead, it reached up and grabbed hold of its chest, pulling the bones and antlers apart to expose the hollow area inside. You want this back, don't you? I slowly squatted down and picked up the heart. The creature stood there, still as a statue, the cavity of its chest exposed, waiting for me to return the heart. You can have it! I held the heart out before me, walking towards the creature one step at a time. Once I was within reach, I tossed the heart into the opening, where it clattered against the creature's bones. The creature didn't move. Are we cool? I slowly backed away from it. In response to my question, the creature turned its head, looking at something over my shoulder. I turned around. The only thing behind me was the body of Deputy Davis. I looked back at the creature. It was once again staring at me, waiting for me to do something. When I didn't move, the creature looked over at Davis's body again, then back at me. No. 
I shook my head as it dawned on me what the creature was wanting me to do. If you want his heart, you're going to have to get it yourself. Someone was screaming. It took me a couple of minutes to realize it was me. The door to my room buzzed as it was unlocked, allowing the psychiatric nurse to enter my room. Another bad dream? I nodded and looked down at my hands. I was dreaming about my encounter with the creature in the woods. I had gotten to the part where I had to remove Deputy Davis's heart when I woke up screaming. Even though it was a dream, I could still feel the deputy's slick blood on my fingers. I'm going to get you something to help you sleep. The nurse walked away, letting the door click shut behind her. The sheriff didn't believe me when I returned to the station and told him what had happened. He thought I was crazy and had me placed under an involuntary psychiatric hold pending his investigation into the death of Deputy Davis. Last I heard, he was considering charging me with Davis's death. According to the attorney that's been appointed to my case, they have plenty of evidence against me and it would be in my best interest to make a deal and tell them what actually happened out there. I told him to go fuck himself. The lawyer hasn't been back to see me since that's okay because someone else has been coming to visit someone who is not happy that I'm locked up and being held against my will when I look out the window of my room I can see the tips of his massive antlers poking through the tops of the trees at the edge of the property survived our terrifying tales. Join us again next week, if you dare. The No Sleep Podcast Hour is presented by WNSP in conjunction with Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cordette. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast Hour, we thank you for tuning in and for being a supportive Season Pass member. This program is copyright 2022 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.